Welcome back to PT Meal Podcast, a buffet of play, therapies, movement, exercises, activities, and leisure, all packed in a hearty conversation of physical therapy profession and practice with a Filipino flavor. I am Johan Delapaz, your host. Welcome back to the banquet. So again, to those who are first, uh, you know, listening to first time listeners to uh, to the podcast or first time to watch this podcast on YouTube, um, this podcast is available in all streaming apps, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and many more. You can also watch most of the full episodes and live streams on YouTube. If you want to stay updated on fresh episodes, interview snippets, research abstracts, or educational materials, follow the podcast's uh, social media accounts in Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Check out as well our Etsy store. Uh, search PT Meal Shop at etsy.com for some merch. So it's it's one word, PT Meal Shop. So all links and content are available in the website, ptmealpodcast.com. All right. So in today's episode of our podcast, I'm thrilled to introduce... Our special guest, Dr. Bobby Bellarmino, a distinguished physical therapist with an impressive educational background and wealth of experience in the field. As a cardiopulmonary clinical specialist, Dr. Bellarmino brings a unique perspective to his practice, particularly in the area of ICU rehabilitation, reducing hospital readmissions in cardiovascular and pulmonary population, and improving frailty in elderly populations through rehabilitation interventions. So without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Bobby Bellarmino to our podcast and dive into an enlightening conversation about his uh, about the ICU and cardiopulmonary PT specialization. Hi there, Bobby. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you for having me, Johan. I really <laughs> appreciate you for inviting me into your wonderful, exciting <laughs> podcast. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad to have you here. And at last, we're, we're doing this. Uh, we met in person as a CSM, and then we we discussed about this. And I I really think that you know um there's there's you know our our listeners and our colleagues would really find uh, the value in in learning more about the specialization and and your work in ICU rehabilitation. Um, but before we start, could you give us a background on how you started in physical therapy and what led you to your current role now? Yes, um, I uh, let me talk about my education. So mm-hmm. I have my entry level of bachelor's of physical therapy at Virgen Milagrosa University Foundation that's in San Carlos, Pangasinan, Philippines. Mm-hmm. And then I continue my postgraduate, uh, finishing my master's of arts in applied physiology at uh, Teachers College, Columbia University in New York. And then continue on to my doctor of PT, doctor of physical therapy at Mass General Hospital, uh, Institute of Health Professions in Boston University. And then I decided, you know what? I want to study more. I want to do <laughs> more about research. So, so I went for my PhD in physical therapy at Texas Women's University at Houston campus. And currently I serve as the assistant professor at the Department of Physical Therapy at UT Health San Antonio in San Antonio, Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, to answer how I started, um, back when I, after my high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do in life. <laughs> One day I was sitting in my in our living room after graduation. My father and my mother told me, do this, do that, do that. But there was a big push to be a nurse. And I said, you know what? I really don't want to be a nurse. Everybody in my family is a nurse. I don't want to be another nurse. Mm-hmm. And then I said, nursing is not good. Nursing is a wonderful profession, but I feel like it's not for me. Mm-hmm. So one day my aunt called me, what are you doing? And I said, oh, nothing, you know, maybe I should do something. 
why don't you help me carry your grandmother who happened to have a stroke at that time? Mm-hmm. And she said to me, Alika, tulong mo magbuhat para dalhin sa hospital ng lola mo. So I said, okay, all right. Then I helped my grandmother. I was so bad because at that time I was feeling helpless. I don't know how to help her. Mm-hmm. So I carried her and took her to the rehab. And then the physical therapy uh, helped my grandmother. And then I become interested in the professions. I said to my aunt, can I go with you again? And my aunt said, of course. Mm-hmm. So you know, during that summer, I saw my grandmother being bedridden after stroke to someone who can get up, make a few steps, and start walking. Uh-huh. And that was the start of my fascinations of the profession. I said, wow, how has uh-huh. this happened? Someone who had a stroke, bedridden, all of a sudden you can stand up and make a few steps. I want to be like this. Uh-huh. And then after that, I said, I want to learn about this physical therapy. Yeah. But at that time, people didn't know about physical therapy. When I asked about what's physical therapy, everyone was saying, that's masahista. Uh-huh. I was like, no, it's not. Right. It's not. So I dig in a little bit more, interview the physical therapist, the one who took care of my grandmother. And at the same time, my aunt, who's an anesthesiologist, called me and said, what have you been doing lately in your life? And I said, really, I don't know. I wanted mm-hmm. to do this, I wanted to do that. And she said, why don't you just be a physical therapist? That was the start of my path for wanting to become a physical therapist. Uh-huh. And now I'm here, I, you know, I'm in love with the professions, uh-huh. and I'm so blessed to do what I love to do and get paid with it in the process. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Oh, that's amazing. It's, yeah, usually it's it's either um, people would say they wanted to be a doctor, that's why they, they went to physical therapy, or they had a brush or experience with other physical therapists, that's why they were inspired to do the same. Amazing. So, and and you're as as I mentioned in in my intro, you're a cardiopulmonary clinical specialist. Where where did that interest come from? So, how did you got get into into cardiopulmonary physical therapy? Yes, that's a very good questions. Um, I was in elementary and uh-huh. we learned about the body. Uh-huh. I come to realize this one organ uh-huh. very was very powerful that has the power for life and death. When this one organ stopped beating. You're done. Mm-hmm. So how is this one organ has that right? And I was one day waiting for my uh, ride and I was with my classmate and he was also waiting for his ride. And I said, oh, what have you been doing? I'm waiting for my dad. And it's like he was a little bit frustrated because he was late. And I said, well, what did that do? And he said to me, cardiologist. At that time, I said, cardiologist, what is that? I look at it and I said, doctor of the heart. And at the same time, I was at that time when we were learning about the heart and lungs and I was fascinated with the heart. And that's why I was gravitated to the organ of heart at that time. Mm-hmm. One organ, the size of a fist of your hand. If you look, mm-hmm. you make a fist right now and mm-hmm. look at it, that's the size of your heart. And mm-hmm. how is that one organ so powerful that when it stops beating, you're done. You can right. have a brain dead, but you're still alive, right? Mm-hmm. The heart stopped, that's it. So that was the, uh, the start of my curiosity of in the cardiovascular pulmonary. And then throughout my career, I always interested about cardiovascular and pulmonary, mm-hmm. but I was told early on, don't, don't pigeonhole myself by ju- just focusing on one area. Right. So after graduating, I went to different uh, specialty, neural, wound care, other ortho, but I always come back to my love, my passion, which is cardiovascular pulmonary. Mm-hmm. So after many years of working in different areas mm-hmm. and kind of picked up along the way, experiences working with different diagnoses, I found myself going back to my true passion, which is the heart and lungs. And then I decided, you know what, I'm going to uh, specialize that. At the same time, uh-huh. the APTA at that time is really gearing up specializations. 
I've seen my coworkers successfully become cardiovascular and pulmonary specialists. And at the same time, I was lucky enough to work at, uh, I was a traveling physical therapist at uh, Florida at that time. Mm-hmm. And I t- transitioned to working to nursing home. And there was an opportunity to work in an ICU at uh, New York, Mount Sinai Hospital. And I was lucky enough to get an interview and lucky enough to get a job. And I was really excited to work because now I got to work with the ICU focusing on cardiovascular and pulmonary. And at the same time, many exciting things happening in the ICU, operations, surgeries, a lot of advancements. So at Mount Sinai Hospital, I find myself very invigorating, very exciting to the, to the area of cardiovascular and pulmonary. So I parked myself there for 12 years and through the process, you know, pick up my cardiovascular and pulmonary clinical specialization along the way. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's amazing. Like when I, when I hear people, like when I hear colleagues say that, that they, they do work in ICU, I was like, oh, that's amazing. Because when I was an intern and, and when I was um, working, there there's little attention to physical therapists working in ICU rehabilitation because what we're thinking as a physical therapist that the ICU is those people who are who really need a lot of medical care those who are you know attaching a lot of machines and tubes and and what the heck are we gonna do in 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 ICU as a physical therapist so in your vast experience in in, in ICU what what do you think is the the essential role of of PPs in in that setting in that right. area. That's a very good question. Before I ask that, let me tell you a bit my first experience in the ICU. Uh-huh. So I had the pleasure to work at St. Luke's Hospital in Quezon City. Mm-hmm. And that time, um, there were some rotations. And mm-hmm. since I like cardiopulmonary, my supervisor said, why don't you go to ICU? At mm-hmm. that time, at St. Luke's, the ICU is cardio cardiac care unit. So mm-hmm. I remember first patient in the ICU, I was so scared, intimidated with all lines, tubes, and drains, and all those belts and whistles. I was right. just doing any passive range of motions uh-huh. and a little bit of movement. There was this noise and I was like, ooh, I'm going to kill the patient. Yeah. So fast forward, I realized that the main purpose of physical therapy in the ICU is to help the patient recover from the acute illness as early as possible, as yeah. safe as possible. So it's very important for the physical therapy in the ICU to recognize the right time. Is the right time for patient to start moving now. So how do we do that? We look at the risk benefit. We need to first make sure that the patient is stable enough Mm -hmm. so that they can start the healing process. Once the uh, patient is stable enough, we can then start the physical therapy. We start mobility. Mobility is what we provide at the ICU so they can start the healing process, recovery from the illness. So in answer to your questions, whether does the physical therapist provides in the ICU is by providing them the healing process from their illness or acute uh, surgery. Mm-hmm. And and how do you determine if it's the right time? Right. Uh, does, does, does it come from your decision or doctor's decision? That's yes. So uh, there's depends on the setting, right? Uh-huh. I always I always tell my students we make our own decision because mm-hmm. we're an independent practitioner. Okay. So the the team physicians can refer the patients to us to physical mm-hmm. therapy. Uh-huh. If it's deemed appropriate, but we need that. We need first the uh, referral from the sources, maybe may from the physician, nurse mm-hmm. practitioner, or PA, whatever is the uh, the protocol or the setup the the ICU. Mm-hmm. Once we receive the referral, I then need to make a determination if it's safe or medically ready to start physical therapy. So how do I do with that? Remember, I said when is the state stability? Is it the risk benefit? Mm-hmm. Look at the patient number one. Is the vital signs okay, stable enough? Look at the 
the, the mean arterial pressure, look at the heart rate, look at the ultrasound, look at the uh, cognition of the patient. If the patient is alert, able to follow, that's important. And then overall, you look at the whole picture. You have to pull all the things that you know and look, so make a determination overall, looking at the risk benefit. Is it riskier to, to start moving the patient or is it beneficial to start physical therapy? If the benefit is, is higher than the risk because you see there's more of the advantage, then start mobilizing the patients. Then you need to use your clinical judgment on how much you can provide mobilization at the start. And then that's why you come in with your uh, knowledge in the ICU. And you mentioned you mentioned about cognition. Are there times that you're in the ICU and you mobilize a patient who, who you move passively or... Does it have to be the, the patient has to be active during interventions in ICU? Depends on the situations uh, always. Okay. What is my goal? What is the story of this patient? Uh -huh. Let's say, for example, a patient who just had a surgery, let's say uh -huh. a cabbage, cardiovascular, uh, a coronary, coronary artery bypass graft. Uh -huh. So the goal is to recover, right? The patients uh -huh. now revascularize their coronary arteries. So the heart is needs to rehab. Right. So the goal is to get back on their feet so we have to make sure that the patient is as active as possible. Their hemodynamics uh, our parameters are stable enough so that they can participate with yeah. the active movement. Yeah. So patients need to be uh, active, alert, participatory. Yeah. Then, yeah. then let's do a different scenario. Patient is you know, having some delirium, uh, agitation, um, and really not able to participate with physical therapy. Yeah. Then I have to ask myself, what is my goal here? Is my goal is to re, uh, diminish the negative consequences of bed red, bed written, yeah. or or should I try to uh, come back later and see if the patients are ready for the uh, physical therapy the following day, or yeah. maybe I can start some education, especially if they have family members that are very active and very engaging. Mm -hmm. So I have to make a decision. What is my goal? What do I want to accomplish with that? Mm -hmm. In situations like that, where patients may be, you know, comatose, or maybe may need some uh, patients might need a little bit more education, then I start doing that so that they can start some range of motion, something like, I always believe in human touch. Mm -hmm. I remember a patient of mine who was in comatose, and I very, after that conversation, it becomes a learning lesson to me. And he said to me, which, which is quite interesting, I asked him, during the time that you were on comatose, he described to me that he was in this, what I called a vacuum of, like a swimming pool. Mm -hmm. Swimming and swimming and swimming, swimming and swimming. And then other patients on comatose said to me, I was in this wild uh, wilderness, open space. All I he saw was a blue sky, trees, open space. But one thing that this particular patient said to me that he heard the voices around. Oh. He heard the voices of the nurses. He heard mm. the voices of the family members. Mm -hmm. He said that at that moment, he, doesn't under he didn't understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. But at that moment, it gives me this uh, understanding that even the patient is on comatose state, mm -hmm. they can still hear us. Mm -hmm. So at that moment, I realized the power of human touch, human connections. So I educate the patient family members, especially the, excuse me, the family members to say, okay, you can do some range of motion, touch your patients, your loved ones and everything and start engaging because you never know, right? You never mm -hmm. know. So 
going back to your questions, whatever is the goal, whatever is the, the benefit of that encounter, because we are a skilled physical therapist, that encounter has to be skilled services. Mm -hmm. So I make it a point that my encounter will provide some skilled services. If there's no skilled services, then I then decide to stop physical therapy, maybe hold the physical therapy, come back. Mm -hmm. So every encounter must have some skilled services that come out to that. So mm -hmm. when age educations, whatever. So it depends on the goal, going back to your question. Mm -hmm. Got it. There's a big drive now, which is rightfully so, I guess, about ICU early mobilization, prevention of, you know, delirium, hospital delirium, stuff like that. How how big of an impact um, are the physical therapist's um, recommendation in you know early mobilization and let's say decision making about sedation of a patient in ICU? Right, that's a very good question. Um, mm -hmm. My experience led me to think that it becomes specific to facility. Mm -hmm. um, depends on the culture of the facility. Mm -hmm. um, I, I will speak on my experiences mm -hmm. at Mount Sinai Hospital and Houston Methodist Hospital those are large academic teaching hospitals that really embraces the early mobility. Mm -hmm. um, right now, there's what we call ICU liberations mm -hmm. that they follow the A, B, C, D, E, F. Mm -hmm. uh, the E is the exercise. Um, basically, there's a rounds, team rounds every morning. Mm -hmm. The goal is to see if the patient can be uh, less sedated or choice of uh, better analgesia because of, you know, as we know now, pain, medication become addicted, and patients in the ICU, especially the one with orally intubated, need not to be sedated. If they are uh, patients are participatory and they are able to not prevent any pulling of the tubes, then they can be awake. Um, so the ICU liberation uh, basically helps the teams to make a decision what to do best for the patients. And going back to your questions, how much contribution of physical therapy? Very good. Um, because we then participate on, do we start mobility? Mm. Do we start early uh, physical therapy? Mm. Uh, in that role, we are part of the process in making a decision. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that um, all hospitals will avoid, uh, uh, follow that uh, or any other procedures they may have, because I do believe that not all patients in the ICU, especially when they are orally intubated, needs to be sedated. Their situation, that patient needs to be sedated for safety, That's I understand that, but it's not like all the time. Mm -hmm. Just because they're orally intubated, just because they are uh, in the ICU, they need to be sedated. Tons mm -hmm. of uh, research says that that's counterproductive. Mm -hmm. But one research also, I must remind, which is very powerful, I don't remember the exact title of that article, but they were saying that when they look back, retrospective, of early mobility because there's a big push, early mobility, early mobility, early mobility. Mm -hmm. They did a retrospective study and they look at being aggressive in early mobility versus just enough. Uh -huh. They found that those, those institutions who practice aggressive uh, early mobility have, uh, have more problems, oh, okay. adverse effect. And when they see the benefit of that, there's no so much of a significant difference mm -hmm. at all. Uh -huh. If my memory serves me right. I don't know. I have to go back to that article. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> but one thing that I took away from that article is that we have to, physical therapists, for me as a physical therapist in the ICU, we really have to find the right time, mm. the right moment of physical therapy. Not because you're being required to physical therapy, mm. not because you have to follow the early mobility. Mm. We really have to make our own decision 
-hmm. is it the right time mm -hmm. for the patients to start mobility? Mm -hmm. Will there be a benefit for the patient? Is there a safe uh, adverse effect here? If there's mm -hmm. safety precautions that we need to adhere to, mm -hmm. once you go through to that and making sure that this is the right time, then we need to provide that. And mm -hmm. if it's not the right time, then we need to withdraw for that and let mm -hmm. allow the medical management takes its um, uh, uh, action so that the body can heal and appropriate timing for physical therapy can be administered. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and, and that's the, the main goal in, in ICU, right? It's, it's letting the body heal, right? Um, that's so amazing when, when you're talking about the ICU. It, there's a lot of decision-making going on with just that, you know, with a visit. It, it's exciting at the same time, kind of intimidating just listening to it. <laughs> and there was a, a big um, spotlight put to ICU rehabilitation during COVID, right? When everyone was being sent to ICU and with the, the, the question was, are we just going to let them stay in the ICU or are we going to let them walk with all those machines and stuff like that? Oh, that's amazing. Um, talking about those kinds of settings, ICU, I also hear about um, units called critical care units. How is critical care units different from ICU? Are, are they the same or are there some differences? Yes, thanks, Dave. Before I ask, let me allow, allow me to say, because you mentioned about it's uh, there's a lot of things going on decision-making, right? Mm -hmm. That's why I'm going to prefix that how at Houston Methodist Hospital, I was in New York at that time um, teaching and I wanted to go back to the clinic. And at the same time, my life trajectory changed and I find myself going to Houston, Texas. And at the same time, there was an offer for me to work at Houston Methodist Hospital. And I was really interested in establishing this ICU fellowship. Mm -hmm. I do believe that I've been hearing that moment, you know, therapists, physical therapists, especially when you're newly hired, especially when you're newly graduate, are forced to go to ICU. And there's a, that's a danger for that. Although ICU, working in ICU is the safest place because you have all the help that you can and all the monitors. But again, like what you said, there's a lot of decision making. Mm -hmm. So Houston Methodist Hospital created this ICU fellowship yeah. for the purpose of training the next generation to become specialists provider of choice in the ICU, because as you said, there's a lot of things going on, decision-making, right. not just going there and then you can, okay, there's a lot of things to process. So ICU fellowship is, is what we have in Houston Methodist Hospital. Now, mm -hmm. going back to that, ICU is a general term, intensive care units, and is, is, is a general term saying that this part of the hospital is intensive. They need more care. They need more monitoring because the patient's condition is critical. Mm -hmm. um, the nurses needs to make sure that the patient's uh, stability uh, continuously monitored. So, um, so the case and the condition is, a, we can say it's a little bit fragile. Mm -hmm. so they need a little bit more intensive monitoring. So the word intensive care unit comes from the motion, the notions of the patient's conditions is intensive. So need mm -hmm. that. And different hospital has different ICU, depends on the specialty area. Oh. So for example, Houston Methodist Hospital, um, they have, I think five or six, let me think. They have surgical ICU, they have coordinary ICU, they're cardiothoracic ICU, and there's also a step down called IMU, intensive medical unit. Uh, and there's also neuro ICU, so there's five. So let, let me talk each and every one of them, those ICU. When we say cardio, a cardiac care unit or CCU, that means this patient is entirely from the cardiac problem. Mm -hmm. So patients who may be on mechanical circulatory devices, meaning balloon pump, uh, impeller devices, uh, LVAD, left ventricular assist devices. That means the patient's heart is uh, in a critical condition. So they need to be uh, addressed on that because the care 
is more for the heart. So the nursing, the, the physicians, all the support system needs to center around, around the cardiac uh, care. Mm -hmm. There's another one, uh, cardiothoracic ICU. That means all the surgery that comes from the cardiac thoracic goes to that. So people who had a heart transplant, lung transplant, um, patients who had a uh, video-assisted thoracic surgery, any surgery at all goes to this cardiothoracic ICU. The goal is to, to recover from the illness, from the surgery itself. Uh, surgical ICU, uh, anything that doesn't belong to cardiac or, or cardiothoracic goes to uh, surgical ICU. You can see liver, like liver transplant, kidney transplant, some uh, orthopedic surgery that has some uh, uh, cardiopulmonary condition. For example, patient with hip and knee surgery that have some pulmonary condition like atelectasis, like collapse of the alveoli, they need a little more intensive. Now going back to uh, neuro ICU, patients who had a stroke, patient who had a craniotomy, anything about neurological di uh, diagnosis. And then one thing now is what we call IMU. The IMU is like a step down because sometimes the patient is a little bit better Mm -hmm. They're not necessarily critical, but still needs to be intensive care. They mm -hmm. go to what they call step down. Mm -hmm. That means they, they need a little bit more care. They may need a little bit more uh, oxygenation. They need more higher oxygenation this time. But at this stage, the patient's condition uh, progresses in a bit so that they are just waiting to either go to regular floor or need a little bit more. Or sometimes patients are lucky enough to go home from the mm -hmm. IEP. So those are the different kinds of in units in the IC. It depends on the care and the condition of the patient, specific, diagnosis specific, basically. Mm. And, and so the term critical care unit, it's just hospital uh, specific. Sometimes they use that, sometimes they don't. Depends on the unit. So uh -huh. Uh -huh. The, critical, the ICU is a general term. Uh -huh. Their patient has a heart condition specific CCU. Uh -huh. If they have uh, uh, cardiothoracic surgery, they go to cardiothoracic ICU. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. So um, in, in working in the... Uh, uh, ICU uh, or as an ICU physical therapist, uh, what are the most you know common cases that uh, a PT can encounter? Yes, uh, uh, bypass surgery, valve mm -hmm. surgery. Mm -hmm. um, you can have patients with uh, uh, video assisted thoracic surgery. Let's say, for example, they did some lobectomy mm -hmm. uh, in the in the let's say community hospital. You can see patient pneumonia, mm -hmm. patients who had some you know. Uh, uh, acute exacerbations of their COPD who needs a little bit more intensive care, uh, patients uh, on mechanical ventilator. So those are the people you'll see in the ICU. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. When we say, when, when, when patients are receiving intensive care uh, medically, is the physical therapist, uh, is the physical therapy intervention expected to be less challenging than normal? Or, or you can go as, as you know, as intense as you can with a patient. Uh, depends again. I was uh -huh. depends, right? <laughs> that, that's <laughs> that's the best answer in physical therapy. It depends. It depends. Uh -huh. It depends. I tell my students, depends. <laughs> and then my student would say, yeah, it depends. <laughs> well, it depends on what's the need of the patient, right? Right. Uh huh. Um, nowadays. I, many years ago, not many years ago, a couple of years ago, <laughs> I enjoyed working uh -huh. with patients for an hour, 45 to an hour, because uh -huh. they're just so needy. Uh, now with their uh, change of practice, you can only do 30 minutes to 45 minutes, typically 30 minutes, really. Mm -hmm. um, so 
you have to prioritize what you can do on that time frame mm. because you have this X amount of patients you need to see. Right. So um, in as much as I wish I could spend more than 30 minutes with my patient, the mm. practice change. Mm. So I do prioritize what's the most important right now. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I look at always the breathing uh-huh. because one oh, of the things right. I realize is that, you know, they have a lot of gunk secretions and sometimes those are the things that I find in my practice not being addressed to. Respiratory yeah. therapy can definitely address that. They have all the gadgets that they can do that, but there's so much they can do. Most important is how is the patient, you can teach the patient if they are uh, the patients are awake enough, how can you make the patient independent enough to learn how to take care of their own airway clearance technique? So I spend a little more time for those patients who need that education so that they can learn how to get rid of the secretions. I've always believed that once you provided that tool to the patients, mm-hmm. when they can be independent and able to get rid of the secretions, that's a big plus, big benefit for the patients because then you tool, you arm the patients a tool that they can do by themselves. Right. So you're empowering them with, with, with that simple um, education. Uh, the reason I asked that um, question earlier is I remember, I just remember, I, I had an experience in the Philippines going to an ICU. And, and the only thing that we did back then, it took two of us, but the only thing that we did was passive range of motion. I was like, oh, so this is the only thing that physical therapists do in I- ICU, passive range of motion. And then coming over here in the US, I'm like, oh, there's a lot of things that physical therapists can do in in, in the ICU. And it's like, oh, okay. But it's, it's still it's scary. <laughs> I mean, for me, it's scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because I... Uh... I had experience in the Philippines when my mother um, sick. We went, mm-hmm. we took her to a, uh, a hospital in where I live. I try not to mention the hospital, um, and uh, it, they claim to be world-renowned advanced hospital. They do in their own way. So my mo- my mother was in the ICU, and I talked to this physiatrist. We have a doctor, and I asked for the early physical therapy in the ICU. And I was surprised that the physiatrist at that time looked at me in the eyes and said, well, we don't do physical therapy in the ICU. I was stunned by that request, by that statement. And I said, this is what I do in the United States. So what do you mean? You don't do physical therapy in the ICU. And the physiatrist said to me that nobody family members are requesting. And I said, I'm the family member. I pay for these charges. I'm requesting for the physical therapy in the ICU. Well, get upset. So I said, well, sorry, I'm just going to do my own physical therapy on my mother. Uh-huh. So, yeah. So I think in the Philippines, I wish there would be more of this. And I wish that if given a chance, I would love to educate what I do in the ICU so that the, the practice in physical therapy, especially in the ICU, will advance. Basically, using on my one incident and upon my own uh, experience, it led me to believe that the practice of ICU in the Philippines needs a lot more help. To advance it, mm-hmm. and and uh, if given a chance, I would love to give that because there's so many things that we are learning, doing here, mm-hmm. and I find it thinking, why not? Why why is the Filipino patients? They deserve this kind of treatment as well that we're doing. We right. know this what to do. We know we know the know how. We have the specialty. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of political will. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of those willing to be open mm-hmm. and for advancement. Again, it's about the patients. Mm-hmm. It's not about the physicians. At that moment, I find these physicians very close. Um, and I didn't argue because, you know, we have the saying in the Philippines, it's still in the culture. Uh, I'm the doctor. I know everything. Um, yeah, we respect that. 
we really acknowledge that, but let's make a team collaborations because if it's a team collaborations, patients win, the institutions win, everybody wins. Right, I agree. At the same time, there's a lot of like, um, be opening that door up can open up a lot of doors for physical therapists as well, not just like working in outpatient or you know to the inpatient outpatient systems of hospitals. PTs can work in ICUs. PTs can work in the emergency department. I mean, there's a lot of things that would open up a lot of opportunities for PTs as well. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think Filipino patient deserves that. That's true. We yeah. we, we we send nurses therapists good people to the United mm -hmm. States or other countries. Mm -hmm. They benefited us. We learn. We then can share those expertise and knowledge to their motherland mm -hmm. so that ultimately Filipino patients can benefit as well. Exactly. Yes. Right. So the, working in an ICU, it's a team collaboration, right? Um, what are, you know, what are the, the challenges a physical therapist can encounter in, in working in such setting with, you know, very acute illnesses, a high, you know, you know, uh, requirement to you know collaborate. What 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 challenges can a PT expect in working in that setting? Uh, based on my experience, mm -hmm. it's the culture. Mm -hmm. There's a culture war. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, sad that not all hospital embraces the early mobility mm -hmm. or physical therapy. Uh, aspect in the ICU. Mm -hmm. I find it that it may be just because of the uh, support staff mm -hmm. or maybe the, the knowledge of the, uh, the people who make decisions. Mm -hmm. They don't see it as beneficial. Mm -hmm. So I'll put it together as a culture change. Mm -hmm. the, the decision makers need to really embrace the paradigm shift for early mobility, early uh, collaboration team approach mm -hmm. so that they can see the benefits, the advantage of, of, of team approach in the ICU and yeah. also the early mobility. Unfortunately, in as much as we are having success in other hospitals, not all have that. Mm -hmm. And I had a, um, uh, I have to be very careful here. I had a very interesting conversation to some of the uh, management. Uh, I was in this in, uh, setting and I happened to talk to some of the decision makers and I was challenging them in their mindset of why the early mobility, why is it the practice of physical therapy, occupational therapy? No, no, let me back up. Why is the, the early mobility mainframe is not being adapted? Meaning to say patients in the oral, who's orally intubated can be walked mm -hmm. by physical therapy, by respiratory therapy. We can work on that. Why is this not happening? And I find myself frustrated and at the same mm -hmm. time pushing it because I want to create some, I find it, I, I felt some resistance, so I push it. So I use my position in the academia academia as an assistant professors as a clinical specialist with this kind of specialty with this kind of specialty and experience to push that forward mm -hmm. because i am speaking in behalf of what i believe will be beneficial to the practice right and um i kind of challenged that and at the end i felt like we have an understanding and they mm -hmm. have some conditions that we don't practice it yet because mm -hmm. we don't have the right people to practice it 
Mm, okay. I said to this person, when, if that's the case, there's many people here uh, that have all the specialty and know-how, you can do it. They can mm -hmm. get training from Mm -hmm. With the use of technology right now, Zoom, webinars, mm -hmm. it's no longer a limitation mm -hmm. to provide the necessary training. Uh, if the institutions really are committed to that, they can mm -hmm. invite some expert to come into their hospital and provide a day in services and everybody can benefit it. Uh, it's also a win-win situations because it afforded the staff some continuing education. It afforded the staff some form of feeling they're getting something from the institutions, mm -hmm. they're feeling uh, you empower them mm -hmm. from this knowledge. And also at the same time, you make sure the institution is providing them the best practice because mm -hmm. of inviting that institution. So I don't know mm -hmm. what happened. And I do hope that I, I was coming from a good place. That's why I was pushing it because I mm -hmm. wanted to, uh, uh, I, I've learned this conversation to someone. Sometimes you need to create disruption so that the comfort can be, you know, can be challenged. Mm -hmm. What we tend to be doing may need to be reassessed mm -hmm. because things have changed, the practice have changed. And sometimes people who don't look at their practice may be, find themselves left behind with the advancement of practice. So I right. use that moment to create disruptions so that they themselves can look at what they're doing in their own practice and hopefully can make necessarily uh, changes. I'm mm -hmm. hoping that. Mm -hmm. All right. How does how does early mobility and and ICU rehab um, impact reduction of hospital readmissions? Is there is there a, a relationship there? Yes, there are a lot of researchers mm -hmm. about the early mobility helping in reducing readmission uh, hospital stay, mm -hmm. reducing the hospital stay in the ICU, mm -hmm. reducing the length of stay overall of the hospital, and also beneficial to the institutions uh -huh. because it's less hospital days. Right. Uh, also, uh, less uh, the many research about less um, re hospital readmissions, which is mm -hmm. very important right now. Exactly. Less uh, mortality rate, patients mm -hmm. improve satisfactions. Mm -hmm. There's a so, lot of benefits right now. Tons of information right now. Available. So it's a win win for the hospital, win for the patient as well. Absolutely, everything. Mm -hmm. It's that's why you, you know to say that we don't have the right people. Mm -hmm. It's a first step. Mm -hmm. But let's just not stop on that. Mm -hmm. Let's continue the conversation. Let's continue to look at ourselves. What can we do about it? Because there's so many advancements. There's so many help around it. It's just a matter of commitment mm -hmm. and really, um, um, uh, you know, having that driven force. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, wow. <laughs> there's a lot of really, you know, things to uh, to to take in. Um with ICU rehabilitation, and there's a lot of you know uh, cases as well that it would involve cardiovascular or pulmonary conditions there. And you mentioned earlier that about a, a fellowship and and your um, cardiopulmonary um, clinical specialist. So let's talk about that for those who are interested in going into that line. How does a PT become a, a cardiopulmonary um, clinical specialist, and what you know what are the paths? Right, very good. I like thank you for asking that question because I wanted to share this opportunity to our listeners those who wants to become a cardiovascular pulmonary clinical specialist. Uh, they can go to ABPTS, American Board of Physical Therapy uh, Specialty. Mm -hmm. And in that website, they can get all the information they need. But one thing is they need to have um, hours of mm -hmm. direct contact hours in patients with cardiovascular disorders mm -hmm. and really work on that um, mm -hmm. clinical skills. 
And then you can uh, do your own self audit and mm -hmm. take the exam and see how you are, uh, your knowledge, your skills. And if you need a little bit more help that you can study uh, and do your own um, you know, improvement. There's many continuing, continuing education you can do on your own. Right. Uh, and then when you're ready, you can sit for the cardiovascular uh, uh, clinical specialization exam. You do need some research though, but the research need not to be a really uh, uh, hardcore research. You can be a part of the research. Uh, the purpose of that is to demonstrate that you have some form of knowledge that you have participated in a research. A research could be a case study or anything. It need not to be a really a complex. You can start a small research study. And then once you complete the requirements, you can sit for that. And then, and then you hopefully you pass and you become CCS. That's the uh, pathway for those who want to do it on their own. That's mm -hmm. what happened to me because at that time, there's no what called residency program. Right, right now, uh, the newly graduates or younger clinician can uh, go to this uh, residency program. And there's a tons of residency program nowadays in the United States, depending on your areas, you can go to, uh, again, uh, to ABPTS. And in that website, you can look at many uh, uh, programs uh, per state and yeah. see if you want to enroll in that. Um, basically, the way I describe residency and fellowship, right? Mm -hmm. In residency, in the hospital, here's my analogy. Mm -hmm. In the hospital, there's what we call hospitalist. Mm -hmm. Those are the internal medicine who wants to be more of the first entry. Mm -hmm. for the patients. And then if they want to refer the patient to a specialty specialist, then that's more of a fellowship because you need more in-depth training. Uh, you need a little bit more experiences there. So the residence programs are for newly grad or a few years in experience mm -hmm. uh, clinicians. So you can go for that route. And then for those who want to become more specialist in the ICU, then you can do ICU fellowship. They do require a little bit more experiences. Uh, unfortunately, with the changes of the policy, um, we used to have three ICU fellowship in the nations. Oh. Uh, yes, uh, unfortunately, with the change of policy, uh, it becomes only one. Um, uh -huh. First was John Hopkins University and University of Chicago Medical Center and Houston Methodist Hospital. Those are the three uh, institutions that have the ICU fellowship at that time. Yeah. Because of the changes, the I believe the John Hopkins and the University of Chicago's ICU fellowship are no longer uh, active. So there's one now in existence with the uh, Houston Methodist Hospital. Unfortunately, they're having a hard time getting some applicants because the regulations now is that the applicants needs to be a clinical specialist first or oh. a graduate residency program. Oh, okay. So that policy significantly affected the pool of applicants for our ICU fellowship. Fellowship. Yeah, so um, the last time I spoke to my friend who is a uh, uh, coordinator of the ICU fellowship, uh, I think they're getting one applicant. Mm -hmm. I don't know the specific about it, but I'm hoping that the applicant goes through. So at least mm -hmm. they have one applicant because it, I'm sad if they don't because we created a, uh -huh. a, a really, really good program. Uh -huh. And I'm very, very proud of it because from the inceptions and to the uh, development improvement that we did, uh, we created a program that is really good. Uh, I'm proud of it. And mm -hmm. so much that uh, how many of our graduates 
one, two, three, I think three, uh, became a cardiovascular and pulmonary physical therapy specialist, I think. Mm -hmm. I think in one is sitting for cardiovascular pulmonary this year, and hopefully mm -hmm. she will be uh, passed. And I believe she will pass mm -hmm. um, because uh, she's bright. And uh, we really prepared uh, mm -hmm. graduates of that ICU fellowship program become successful in sitting for the cardiovascular pulmonary specialty examination and became a practitioner of choice in the ICU. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I kind, but I kind of, I kind of get that that requirement because when you're talking about you know residency then fellowship, it it feels for me it feels like you have to be already in that industry to to appreciate more to go into fellowship. Well, that's that's my my thinking. Like you're you're already specializing because you're already there and you're already already you know you're already in that waters. It's not as if you're coming from a zero experience then you just want to go to a fellowship it's it's you're already there you want to you already know a lot you know a lot of things and you want to enhance that right uh -huh. right you, you said there were keyword enhances uh -huh. it will be a disservice mm -hmm. and the the, app, the individual will feel uh dissatisfied with the experience of the training if they just come in with less experience because it's going to be in depth mm -hmm. right more focus uh mm -hmm. Uh, educational training. Mm -hmm. So someone needs to be in this mindset mm -hmm. as to come with some experiences because those experiences, those training, those education is what you're going to use as a foundation to stand on and build upon that training education that you're going to gain mm -hmm. from this fellowship program mm -hmm. as opposed to going in fresh, then it's not going to be as successful. So that's why it's important to start with the residency program mm -hmm. You can be a uh, geriatric specialist. Mm -hmm. We had also an applicant who is a geriatric specialist and he came from us from out of state and she wants to learn more about the proper best practice in ICU. Oh, and wow. she, she's an experienced PT uh -huh. um, and, uh, and a geriatric clinical specialist has taught cardiopulmonary mm -hmm. uh, program in other PT program. The best practice that we're learning, she now yeah. adapted the best practice. Mm -hmm. yeah. A more structured learning. More structured. Yeah. Yeah, more guided uh, learning. Right. I was looking at AB, the ABPTS website. I was like, wow, the 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 details on the data analysis project and case report. I was like, good thing they didn't have this in, in geriatric because this is this is something else. Because you have to pass that, you know, submit that project as well. It really shows you know your dedication if you're gonna go into cardiopulmonary uh specialization. All right. So um <laughs> It was a great conversation. Thank you very much, Bobby, for Bobby, for coming over to the podcast and sharing your experience with us and your knowledge about ICU rehabilitation, cardiopulmonary, uh, physical therapy. Um, I just have my last three bites, my last questions for you. It's not like it's not related to the topic anymore, but this is the some questions that I usually ask my 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 guests. Is that you know to get to know more about you and and you know just to close the the show. So you ready? Yes. yes <laughs> All right. Yeah. So my, my first um my first bite is what is your recipe for success? Ooh, loaded question. Yeah. <laughs> if I can use it for two words, I think. Driven and curiosity. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's 
curiosity. Curiosity. Uh, you want to know more about what's going on. Mm -hmm. You don't settle for just because. Mm -hmm. You want to improve more. What do they do there differently mm -hmm. uh, that successfully? What am I doing great here that mm -hmm. I'm doing? Um, and then be curious about many things. Mm -hmm. Learn more about this. Be driven. Mm -hmm. Just don't settle for it. What you is? <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. be, right. be driven to 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 do the best you can. Mm -hmm. Because I always believe we're given this one chance in this world and given this a wonderful opportunity to make a difference to our patients. So let's make the most of it. All right. I love that. Be driven and be curious. All right. So my second bite is how do you Continue to sharpen your knives. Yes. Uh, continue studying. Mm -hmm. Continues asking, what are what do I what can I do more? What can mm -hmm. I do differently next time? Mm -hmm. And from that question, you can derive. Okay, I need to learn this. Mm -hmm. I need to ask this. I need to go to this continuing education program so I can sharpen my skills. Um, and then just keep going on it. Mm -hmm. Never settle. And I'm okay. I'm good mm -hmm. enough. You know, I go, I have my paycheck. I have this. I'm good enough. No, mm -hmm. we need to continue to sharpen. We need mm -hmm. to continue to ask ourselves, what can I do better next time? Mm -hmm. Do you have any go-to books or reading materials where you get, you know, updates on uh, Karjapulmo or, or, or IC news? <laughs> Going back again, depends, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. What do you want to learn, right? Uh want to learn about foundational knowledge mm. any books of cardiovascular is uh, is good uh -huh. uh, or continuing education any continuing education is good <laughs> uh, webinars is good um mm. you don't need to go to a live um uh -huh. um uh presentation you can just go with uh, uh a webinar uh, one uh -huh. of the thing is that i must tell you also i'm the online i'm the new online education chair of the academy of acute care of yeah. <laughs> thank you thank you, thank you. Um, it's been so nice to be part of the APTA. So for those of you listening, I would urge you to be part of the process by being active in the APTA, however you want. You don't mm -hmm. have to do big. Whatever you can do is a, is, is a good being mm -hmm. active, um, not just be a bystander. Anyway, mm -hmm. being a member of APTA uh, is, is, is very uh, helpful because you know people have heard, oh, what's the benefit of being APTA? Just a journal, right? Well, there's more. The mm -hmm. APTA is the one advocating for our professions. Uh, for example, in the national level, who's advocating for the practice of physical therapy, the reimbursement of physical therapy? Mm -hmm. Many, many professions are trying to limit our professions or our practice. We need a body that will fight for our practice. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves in this hole, in this box that's limited. So mm. our membership fees pays for that body to fight for our profession. So mm. we might not see it in the direct immediate, but in the larger scheme, mm. it's such a powerful because those are the one who lobby the government, mm. who put forth some uh, bills, who talks to the regulatory uh, agencies, reimbursement agencies, so that mm. our practice continues to prosper and not be limited. Um, and also uh, being not only that, uh, education. So going back to the become a member of the Acute Care Academy. The Academy, we always put forth free webinars. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're working in, uh, in hospitals, uh, there's a lot of educational tools. The APTA Learning Centers has so many information there. If you are a member of APTA, you get a discount uh, uh, fees for that. 
and, and going to CSM is a wonderful, wonderful experiences. You get to know cool people like Johan and all the things that we met, the CSM. I would not otherwise met many cool people, many of our colleagues, Filipino colleagues that did not been to the CSM. So yeah, going there, yeah, many, mm -hmm. many, many uh, opportunities. It depends. It depends. How you yeah. That's true. Going to what you said about APTL, it's it's true. You wouldn't feel the impact or the, the movement of APT if you're just looking at it from the outside. You have to go in. You don't have to be you know so active, but you involve yourself to your specialty, to the academy, to your chapter, so you know how yes. how things work and how oh. we're you know what we call this how 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 that our, our the organization is helping out with the profession yes thank you for reminding me uh, that's a good point you mentioned um you don't need to be that big you know and also to add to that their district mm -hmm. oh they're right right mm -hmm. they, you can just be as active in the district and the amount of work not really much but mm -hmm. you get as much of a satisfaction mm -hmm. from being a part of that process mm -hmm. so just being in your community, mm -hmm. whatever you can, as mm -hmm. long as you be part of the process, not mm -hmm. just a bystanders. That's true. I've been trying to be active in California Physical Therapy Association, and I've been attending meetings. So like, although there's, they do a lot of things, I was like kind of being overwhelmed. But I'm gonna attend uh, a meeting this this coming um, Wednesday in Sacramento, and I was like, oh shoot, they, it's really, you know, they they're doing something. I mean, right. if if you're not part of it, you wouldn't know how much effort and and a time that they put out yeah <laughs> just wanted to put it out there that there's, there's there's if you're just looking out from outside it's easy to criticize if you're not right. part of something it's easy to it's easy, it's easy to criticize but if you're involve yourself there you listen you attend then you you, you can't say stuff like that or you won't be able to say something like that right all right so my <laughs> yeah district district participation is very helpful too true all right my last bite is what are are, what are three ingredients um, that you carry with you uh, every day that you think are essential? It can be a motto, uh, a value, a trait, a, a quote, a Bible verse. So in short, what are the three things that make up Bobby Bellarmino? Again, loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I always thank God for the opportunity that given to me. Mm -hmm. And as long as I am, I will try to maximize the tools, the training that God afforded me so that I can serve, you know, the people. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I always strive to do the best I can each day so that when I lay my head at night, I know I did the best I could for that particular day and give mm -hmm. me the opportunity. Mm -hmm. That's it. <laughs> All right, good. So thank you, God, for the opportunity and, and doing the best that you can for yeah, each so, of those opportunities. Right. So All right. So again, thank you very much for, you know, sitting down with us, taking time to, you know, share with us your experiences in the IC rehab and your uh, love of cardiopulmo. Um, if there is one thing uh, our audience needs to take away from our um, conversation, what is that one thing that you want our audience to remember from our whole conversation? Our patience depends on our help. Mm -hmm. We are in a situations that they really need to recover mm -hmm. from their illness 
or kittens. Physical therapy is not something that you, physical therapy services should not be taken for granted, but make sure that every encounter that we provide to our patient is the best that we can. So that the, our patient, when we leave the patient, we leave the patients better than we first find them. So that we know we provided the best care for our patients. All right. All right. <laughs> Again, thank you very much, Bobby, for you know being here, coming over to the podcast. Um, so I hope everyone has uh got something from our, our conversation. Repeat it, rewind it, try to get it really into your system, and catch us next week on another episode of PT Mail Podcast. Have a great great day, everyone. Thank you.